0: Hello, and welcome back to the Egyptian History Podcast, Episode 51, Everywhere and Nowhere. In this episode, we meet the first kings of the elusive 13th dynasty, a period in which Egypt's royal household was wealthy, powerful and stable, and yet more ephemeral than it had been for 300 years. This episode is brought to you by Paul and James, and thank you for their generous support of the podcast. I hope you, and all my listeners, enjoy the show. The year is now 1786 BCE, and the 12th dynasty is gone. Its last king, the female Neferu Sobek, had died without heir, and a new family has taken power. As a result, the 200-year lineage of Amenemhat I was gone, permanently removed from power. Although they will be forever immortalised as one of the strongest dynasties ever to control the throne, their political relevance has come to its end. The power of rule now belongs to a new family, descended from the king Ma'a Amenemhat IV. But apart from a shift in bloodlines, it is mostly business as usual. Things will change in the coming decades, but at the start, things are progressing as normal. This is still the Middle Kingdom, and that particular era will not come to its end for 75 years. So, why the fuss? The problem with the 13th dynasty, compared to its predecessor, is that it is so much more vague, and so much more convoluted in terms of political history. This makes it an absolute mess to decrypt, and half of the kings don't even have secure dates. We know that they existed, but in some cases, kings could be up to 50 or 70 years out of their proper place. It is horrendous. Case in point, we just have to look at the number of kings in this period, compared to the number of kings in Dynasty 12. Over the span of 200 years, the 12th dynasty was ruled by 8 kings. Each of these individuals held power for about 20 years on average, and many of them ruled much longer than that. It is a long period of time with a relatively small number of rulers, and that means political continuity and a stable chronology, very easy to decipher and understand. But the 13th is a whole other kettle of fish. Over the course of just 150 years, 25% fewer than the 12th dynasty, Egypt saw more than 50 kings come and go. Their reigns were short, their records are few, and their monuments, such as they existed, are gone. Which presents a bit of a problem for us here at the Egyptian History Podcast, as the river of information slows to a trickle. Our chronicle is scanty, which makes it hard to spin a solid narrative about the events of this century. So, there's only one thing to do. Focus on the big picture, and take the opportunity to discuss some other ideas or concerns which are particularly relevant for the Middle Kingdom as a whole. To begin with, let's cover what little we know of the 13th dynasty's 1st century. The first king of dynasty 13 is a man named Sobekhotep I. He was probably a son of maa Amenemhat IV, and probably had a brother who became king after him, but beyond that, we know almost nothing about him. Not much survives from his reign, just a few pieces of monuments at Thebes and in some other communities. He did not live long enough to build a pyramid, or any tomb large enough that has been discovered. Either he wanted one and died too young, or he chose to have himself buried somewhere that we have not found. Whatever the reason, he did not leave behind a tomb that has been discovered. A few years ago, archaeologists found a tomb that they thought might belong to this king, but now that the dust has settled, so to speak, they suggest that it belongs to another Sobekhotep instead. So, no tomb or major surviving monuments for this king. Which is a shame, because out of the 13th dynasty's 50 or so kings, not many of them have left anything in the way of buildings. It'd be nice to have something. Sobek-hotep, like the queen sobek named himself after a god. A crocodile god. Sobek, the Green of Plume, the lord of the mountain of Baku, was a protector, a hunter, and a truly ancient god. Worship of the crocodile began well before the Middle Kingdom, and Sobek was well respected during the Old Kingdom and the Pyramid Age. He appears in the Pyramid texts of the 6th Dynasty, helping the king on his journey and protecting him from evil, so he was a figure of great majesty, worthy of respect. He was represented either as a normal crocodile, or as a human male with a crocodile's head. Sobek's importance filtered into the myths and stories as well. It was said by Egyptians of the Greco Roman period that the Nile was made out of Sobek's sweat, or tears. It varies from story to story. In some tales, Sobek was one of the very first gods to emerge from the primeval waters and was there at the moment when the earth was created. In another story, Sobek helped the grieving widow Isis to recover the body parts of her murdered husband, Osiris. For this act, Sobek was venerated as a protector of kings and a warrior against evil. The result was a religious cult that flourished throughout all periods of Egyptian history. We could easily describe Sobek as one of the premier gods of ancient Egypt, and be justified in doing so. In fact, his cult was so well established and respected in Egyptian society, that it survived from the very earliest days of their history, right through to the final victory of Christianity. That's a good 4,000 years of worship. You'd be hard-pressed to find a god today with that kind of historical pedigree. Sobek was there at the beginning, and he was there at the end. A pretty good resume all round, and one that Sobek Hotep was happy to tap into. The cult of Sobek had really flourished in the late 12th dynasty, The great Amenemhat III had built a temple for Sobek in the Fayum, and this had been expanded by Amenemhat IV. Then, Queen Neferu Sobek took the god's name as her own, and Sobekhotep made the trend a lasting one. Over the course of the 13th dynasty, there would be at least five more kings whose name referenced Sobek. Pretty good for a god whose earthly manifestation, the crocodile, was extremely likely to kill you. I've swum in the Nile River myself, and there is nothing more terrifying than the occasional ripples in the water which make you wonder if a crocodile is nearby. Anyway, I digress. Apart from his name, the few traces of a couple of monuments, and the fact that he was the first king of this new dynasty, we don't know anything of significance about Sobek Hotep I. Not a great start for a dynasty, but what can you do? There's not much we can do and I'm not going to say much more about him. He died sometime around 1782 BCE, having ruled Egypt for just four years. He was followed by his brother, who then ruled for just two years. Power then became something of a Russian roulette, with kings coming and going every three to four years. Most of them are invisible beyond their names, although a few left some little traces of their existence in other mediums. There was, for instance, an Amenemhat V, of whom we know a pretty little statue which I have placed on the podcast website. There were another three Sobek over the next sixty years, and at least one king, named Kemal, who ruled long enough to build a small pyramid. But apart from this, the list is long and undistinguished. We know that the 13th dynasty kept up their contacts with Syria, and at least one sent a small gift to the region but their power was greatly reduced compared to their predecessors. Egyptian armies do not seem to have gone forth from Egypt, and the fortresses in Nubia were slowly being decommissioned. Essentially, Egyptians were retreating back into their traditional borders. This situation lasted for about 80 years, until, all of a sudden, it went to hell. We have now reached the year 1700, about 86 years after this episode began. In that span of time, nothing particularly remarkable has happened in Egypt. There have been no major wars, no construction projects of any note, and no significant cultural achievements. Things were quiet, or at least they were quiet for some. For others, they were about to get very unsettled. The disruption began in the northeast on the edge of the Nile delta this was a region with many foreign settlers usually coming from canaan and syria they had been moving to egypt throughout the course of the 12th dynasty and by the time of sobekhotep i they formed their own little communities within egyptian towns but around 1700 bce the situation changed these communities of foreigners living in the delta rebelled. They, or rather their leaders, declared themselves kings, and created a whole new kingdom overnight. This rebellion, and the creation of a foreign kingdom within Egypt, marks the final end of the Middle Kingdom, and the beginning of a new era, the Second Intermediate Period. Like the First Intermediate Period so many centuries before, the Second Intermediate Period is called this, because it is a time where chronological material is scarce, Written and artistic records are less common, and where the state did not function in its traditional powers. For all intents and purposes, the country is now divided into two once again. At Memphis, Ichitawi and in the south, the 13th dynasty holds sway, but in the delta, it is the realm of the foreign kings of the 14th dynasty. So, what the hell happened? The rise of the northern kingdom, called the 14th dynasty, We'll have to wait until next time. For now, we must finish the story of the Middle Kingdom, with one last flourish of its cultural output. In the space of about 10 minutes, we've covered 86 years, about 30 kings, and the end of a major period in Egyptian history. It is sad that we are able to do that, but the Middle Kingdom really did end with a whimper. A sad, soft, barely audible whimper. Next time, we will explore that whimper from a political perspective. For the rest of this episode, let's look at the way people viewed that time, and periods of instability in general. This is told to us through a story, written sometime in the very late 12th dynasty, which reflects on the ideas of justice and social disorder, which might relate to the whole 18th century debacle. The story is called The Tale of the Eloquent Peasant. It survives today in a few papyrus pieces, has been known to Egyptologists for most of a century. It is a simple tale, with a straightforward message. The story tells of a peasant who, seeking justice for a wrongdoing, makes an appeal to the king's steward. Normally, an upper-class Egyptian would scorn a lowly peasant, but the eloquence of this peasant's words impresses the steward greatly. At the king's request, he refuses to give justice to the peasant, so that the peasant must return again and again, making his increasingly elegant arguments in favour of restitution. This forms the main body of the story, as the peasant argues with ever more elaborate metaphors for why justice is being ignored, and why it is good to fulfil it. The story is very simple, but it tells us a lot about late Middle Kingdom conceptions of Ma'at, the divine justice and order of the universe. It also tells us the sort of language which the audience of Egyptians would appreciate, and consider elegant and sophisticated for the time. Finally, it tells us a little bit about the social hierarchy, and how social barriers might occasionally be subverted by unexpected talents. So without further ado, let's meet the eloquent peasant. Quote, There once was a man named Kun Anup. He was a peasant of the field of salt, the Wadi Natrun. And he had a wife named Merit, or Beloved. Now, this peasant said to his wife, Behold, I am going down to Egypt to fetch provisions for my children. Go and measure me barley for my sustenance. The peasant then set out for Egypt, having loaded his donkeys with a whole list of items to trade, including herbs, wood, leopard skins, and jackal hides, plants, birds, berries, and seeds, abundance of all the finest products in the field of salt. The peasant continued on his way, travelling southward, and arrived at the district Per-Fifi, north of Heracleopolis. there he encountered a man standing on the river bank whose name was nemti nakt nemti nakt was the son of a man whose name was iseri and nemti nakt was a subordinate of the king's steward rensi the son of meru this nemti nakt when he had seen the peasant's donkeys and their goods which delighted his heart spoke i wish i had some kind of charm that endowed the power to confiscate the possessions of this peasant So nemti said to his servant, Go and bring a piece of clothing from my house. He stretched the cloth out across the road, so that its fringe touched the water, and its hem touched his barley field. Now the peasant Kun Anup was travelling along the public road. And nemti said, Watch out, peasant, do not tread on my clothing. The peasant obeyed, and made for the higher ground where the barley grew. Then nemti Nakt said, Are you going to make a path through my barley? The peasant replied, My path is good, but the river bank is too steep, so I must pass through the barley, because your cloth is obstructing the road. Will you not let me pass on the road? But then one of the donkeys began to eat the barley that was Nemtinak's. Nemtinak said, Now I shall confiscate your donkey, peasant, because he is eating my barley. Behold, he will tread out the grain for his crime. The peasant replied, My path is good, and the donkey has only eaten one ear of barley. May I buy my donkey back for its value, if you should seize him just for eating one ear of barley? More to the point, I know whose estate this is. It belongs to the king's steward, Rensi, son of Meru, and he restrains every thief in this entire district. Am I to be robbed on Rensi's estate? Nimti Nakt replied, There is a well-known proverb, a poor man's name is spoken only for the sake of his master, I am speaking to you, and you dare to invoke the king's steward? He took a switch from a tree and beat the peasant's body with it. He confiscated the donkeys and took them back to his estate. End quote. Wow, what a jerk. Nemti Narkt is a cut-and-paste villain. He's greedy, manipulative, and unreasonable. And he also exemplifies the worst aspects of a hierarchical system. He believes he is better than the peasant, and that such lower peoples exist only at his pleasure. Thus, he feels justified in taking what he desires, on account of an insult that he has manufactured for his own benefit. The audience, in Egypt and today, are not supposed to sympathize with Nemti Nakt. There is no way that the story presents him as anything but an example of noble privilege gone awry. He does not uphold the balance of Ma'at, and he is essentially a criminal hiding behind the facade of wealth and legitimacy. Today, we might find a Nemtinacht working on Wall Street, but I digress. Kun Anup is utterly despondent, and Nemtinacht threatens to kill him if he does not keep silent. Recognizing the difficulty of his situation, the peasant does the only thing he can do. He goes to the residence of the king's steward, Rensi, the son of Meru. What follows was, for the Egyptians, a masterpiece of the philosophical subject. Quote, The peasant came to make petition to the king's steward Rensi, the son of Meru, saying, O king's steward, my lord, greatest of the great, decider of everything that has yet to be, and that which already is. My lord, if you go down to the lake of Ma'at, you will sail there in the breeze. The fabric of your sail will not be torn, and your boat will not be driven ashore. You will not taste the perils of the river, and you will not gaze upon the face of fear." Permit me to exalt your name in this land, in accordance with every good law. You are a leader untainted by greed, a nobleman unpolluted by vice, one who obliterates deceit, who nurtures ma'at, who answers the pleas of he who raises his voice. I shall speak, and you will listen. Fulfill ma'at, O exalted one. Relieve me of my distress, for I am wronged. Take heed to me, for I am in anguish. The king's steward, Rensi went before the king and said, My lord, I have found someone among the peasants who is exceedingly eloquent of speech. His property was stolen by a man who is in my service, and he has come to petition me about it. The king said, Keep him here, so that he may keep on speaking. Do not reply to anything which he says. Let his words be brought to me in writing, so that we may hear them. However, send provisions for his wife and children, so that they may live in his absence. Because a peasant only comes to the city when there is nothing in his own house. Furthermore, give this peasant the means to live. Supply him with food, but do not let him know you have sent it. I quite like the silliness of this whole affair. The king knows he can deal with the criminal Nemtin nagd at any time, so he decides to draw it out in order to hear more of what this unusually eloquent peasant can say. Meanwhile, he demonstrates his own obedience to Mart by making sure that the peasant, his wife, and his children are taken care of while the matter is being dealt with. It's an example of what a nobleman, a king or an official, should be. He is enamoured of good speech, curious to learn more even from those below his own status, but still aware of the needs of the common folk. It's a good job all round. Kun Anup comes back a second time to petition, and then a third a fourth, and a fifth. His words and metaphors getting more elaborate every time. Then the peasant came to petition Rancy for a fifth time, saying, O king's steward my lord, the fisherman kills the fish, the harpooner harpoons the fish, the spear fisherman spears the fish, and the net fisherman plunders the river. Behold, you are much the same as them. Do not deprive a pauper of his goods, one known to you as a lowly man. A pauper's possessions are his very breath, and stealing them is like stealing his nose. You were appointed to judge complaints, to judge between two disputants, and to restrain the thief when he has stolen. Men trust you, but you have become a transgressor. You were appointed as a protector for the destitute, that he might not drown. But behold, now you are a torrent raging against him. Oh dear. By his fifth petition, Kun Anup is clearly losing patience and beginning to doubt the sincerity or honesty of the steward. Remarkably, he has the courage to lash out at Renzi, accusing him of failing in his duty. In this moment, he shows the courage of his convictions. Instead of speaking empty philosophical ideas, which, as nice as they are, might not encourage meaningful change, he appeals to Renzi's sense of shame. He attacks his fulfilment of his duty, casting doubt on it, and thus cuts to the heart of the issue. All that is needed for evil to triumph is for good men to do nothing. Quote, then the peasant came to petition him a sixth time, saying, He who fosters mart diminishes falsehood, and he who fosters goodness is a destroyer of evil. Just like when satisfaction comes and ends hunger, like when clothing comes and ends nakedness, and when the sky is calm after a storm, and it warms all who are cold. Just like when fire cooks what is raw, and when water ends thirst. Look right before your face. This nemti nakt is a despoiler, and he who should make peace is now causing misery. He who should create calm is creating trouble, but he who deceives diminishes mart. So fulfill your duty well, so that ma'at may be neither defrauded or made extreme. If you receive something, share it with your companion, for to devour something selfishly is a lack of righteousness. But my misery leads only to my departing, and my complaints lead only to my dismissal. Do not be idle, attend to my accusation, for if you destroy something, who will restore it? End quote. Powerful words, I think. Words to live by. And yet Renzi, in his obedience to the king, is delaying his own power to exact justice, in order to fulfill the king's request. Kind of a tricky situation for Renzi. He has the power to solve Kunanub's problem, but the king has ordered him to wait, until the peasant runs out of philosophical arguments. What do you do in that situation? Renzi obeys the king, and the peasant comes back twice more, each without satisfaction. Eventually, he returns for a ninth and final time. Quote, the peasant came to petition Rensi a ninth time, saying, Men's balance is their tongue. It is the scale which determines what is lacking. Inflict punishment on him to whom punishment is due, so that men may conform to your integrity, and ma'at may triumph over falsehood. Do not be ponderous, but do not be frivolous. Do not be tardy, but do not hurry. Do not be partial, and do not be capricious, giving in to a whim. Do not cover your face before one whom you know. Do not blind yourself against one whom you have seen. Do not spurn one who entreats you for aid. Turn away from slothfulness, good word slothfulness, and let your decision be pronounced. Act on behalf of the one who has been dutiful in appealing to you. Do not listen to everyone else, but respond to a man in accordance with his righteous cause. An idle man has accomplished nothing. One who is deaf to ma'at has no friends. He who is grasping never has a joyful day. He who suffers will become wretched, and he who is wretched will become a plaintiff. But an enemy, an enemy may become a killer. Behold, I appeal to you now, but you do not hear it. So I shall depart now, and appeal about you to Anubis. End quote. And here we reach the crux of the issue. Kun Anub's dissatisfaction has reached its peak, and he is considering appealing directly to the gods for some kind of justice, thus essentially saying that Renzi is useless in his position. Quote, then the king's steward Renzi, the son of Meru, sent two attendants to fetch the peasant back. Then Kunanup was frightened, for he thought that punishment would be inflicted upon him for his speech that he had made. The peasant said, Like a thirsty man's approach to water, like the reaching out of the child's mouth for milk, such is death for one who seeks it, when he sees it coming, when his death, long delayed, finally comes. Then the king's steward Rensi, the son of Meru, said, Have no fear, peasant, all will be done according to Ma'at. The peasant swore an oath, saying, On my life, am I to eat of your bread and drink of your beer forever then? The king's steward had someone read from a scroll every petition that the peasant had made, word for word. The speeches were taken to the king of Upper and Lower Egypt, and they were more pleasing to his heart than anything which was in the entire land. He said, Rensi, son of Meru, give this peasant the verdict. Then the king's steward Rensi caused the guards to bring Nemtinacht, he was brought in, and a list was made of his property. All of it, including servants, barley, Emma, his pigs, his flocks, and his donkeys, were given to the peasant. It has reached its conclusion, as it was found in writing. And that brings us to the end of the story of the eloquent peasant. Nemtinakt is stripped of all his property, and the peasant is enriched by it. Whether this was strictly the outcome the peasant wanted, of course, is not necessarily the point. The fact is, Renzi, on behalf of the king, have restored the balance of Maat by punishing the wrongdoer, and giving the plaintiff satisfaction. It's an idealised story, of course, but it tells us a lot about what we want to know. Ancient Egyptians of the late 12th dynasty, when this was written, were still fascinated with the idea of social justice but were also incredibly interested in how justice was explained, how it was told to others. Today, this story really should be counted among the great philosophical works of Egypt, for it is essentially a nine-part meditation on what justice is, and how one who upholds it can benefit. Unfortunately, the tale of the eloquent peasant is not well known outside of Egyptology, but hopefully that will change. For now, all we can say is that this story gives us a reasonably nice idea of what justice was or what it was considered to be at the end of the 12th dynasty. As the 13th dynasty came and slowly faded away, the ideas of justice would have come more and more to the fore. This is particularly important because, as we shall see next episode, the 13th dynasty can be characterized as a period in which the justice of the king, the power of the king, was not necessarily the true power in the kingdom.